HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. I'm really excited about today's episode. Max and I spoke with Chef Paul Cunningham, who is based in Dundrum, a small village in County Down in the north of Ireland. Paul is a chef who really embodies the idea of blooming where you're planted. He is an unofficial spokesperson for the Mourne Mountains region and really is a chef like no other that we've ever met. Paul is very passionate about true sustainability. He is a forager and he sources all of the food for his two projects from within a 15 mile radius. And he is really serious about sticking to that. A lot of chefs in the food industry, really all over the world, um, but especially in the United States, talk about food miles and eating locally. And most of the time, and there are reasons for this, but most of the time they're talking about sourcing their food within maybe 200 miles or so. We've never actually spoken to someone who really is committed to that um, small of a distance. So that was really inspiring. I had the benefit of eating Paul's food very recently. 
when we stopped for a special five-course lunch and whiskey tasting experience at Kilowin, which is just outside Newry. Paul and his wife treated our group to a really special experience. So not only does he walk the walk when it comes to knowing where your food comes from, sourcing locally, supporting local farmers and growers, Paul also really can deliver. I mean, he cooks really incredible Michelin star quality food experiences. So we're really excited about this interview and can't wait to introduce you to Chef Paul Cunningham, who is the owner and chef behind Scopers and Morn Larder. Well, Paul, it's really great to be able to talk to you and to have you on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was really excited um, to finally have a chance to try your food when we had our lunch at Kilowin a couple weeks ago. That was really incredible, and it was, um, for a lot of people who were there, it was their favorite meal experience on the food tour. So we saved the best for the last yeah, day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good food starts with great produce, so I'm only really passing the bacon on, really. We wanted to talk a little bit about, um, to jump back in history and to talk a little bit about where your inspiration comes from and when you decided that you wanted to either be a chef or become involved in the food industry. Yeah, yeah. So um, I fell in love with food probably at a very, very young age. Um, through my grandfather, to be honest, um, his nickname was Scober. <laughs> um, um, he was Paddy Cunningham. So my grandfather taught me how to forage, taught me how to hunt, taught me how to grow. He, he taught me an awful, awful lot. Um, and just uh, being in the wild with him all the time. And that's where I get my inspiration nowadays whenever I'm out in the wild and I'm tasting new flavors. I just, I get excited about things. Like people always ask me, um, what's your favorite type of food? But it changes all the time. It changes with the seasons because as the different seasons are coming up, you're getting excited about different things, what you can do with them, you know? Do you like to go, um, are you a forager? Are you a hunter? Where do you get your ingredients from when you're cooking? And did you do a lot of that stuff growing up with your grandfather as well? Yeah, yeah. So so lucky enough where I live, it's quite diverse. So where the mountains and moors sweep down to the sea. So I get the very best of the sea and the land. Like where I live, particularly in Dundrum here, um, I five minutes I'm in the beach, five minutes I'm in the forest. And to explain that, I'm trying to pass that on to my own kids. So this evening we're going out mushroom hunting. We're going looking for steps. That's what we're going to do this evening. And my kids are quite young. They're eight, five and two. But they love being that. Like my eldest daughter's eight and she can name every seaweed in the beach. Wow. Which is class. Like if you take nine chefs down to the beach, none of them could even tell you what the dullest is. And, you know, it's the only red algae you can get. Like, um, for me, it's it's very important to have that connection with nature. Um, when you say hunting, um, I guess when I think about Ireland, I don't think about it as having a, a really big sort of hunting culture. Are you talking mostly about like deer and rabbits? What sort of things would you hunt? Deer, rabbits, pigeon, but also going to get razor clams and like that as well. You know, we're going on the beach when the, when the moon's fully out and we'll go straight out and we'll take razor clams off the beach. Everything really, you know, um, it's free food. It's it's free from pesticides. It's, it's within your local area. It's quite funny. Like my older brother said to me a couple of years ago, he takes a spoonful of local honey to keep the body right every day. And I, I quite cheekily said back to him, why don't you just eat local food? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he sort of looked at me as if I had two heads, but he sort of understood what I meant. Like I only eat local food. I don't eat packaged meat. I don't trust packaged meat. 
same as if I go away on holiday somewhere, I only eat food from that region. You know, I'm, I'm very, very strict about what I eat. You know, it's really important, especially nowadays with all the big companies and all the shortcuts they're trying to take. It's really important. So I imagine that you probably do a lot of cooking at home for your family. Would you say you you feed your kids the same thing that you eat yourself? Yeah, to be really honest, because I, I work quite a bit. So my, my wife would be the main chef in the kitchen at home. But when I am home, I do cook. I also take the kids into the forest and like doing wild cooking in the forest with them. I just think that's really important to show them primal, primal sides of cooking. Um, it's just a fun thing to do. Now, my wife isn't a bad cook either, to be honest. So. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Morn region for someone who didn't grow up there and isn't familiar with it? Can you describe it and, and tell us about what it's like, particularly what some of the foods there are? Yeah, so um, it rains, <laughs> and it rains a lot. <laughs> um, it rains loads. But I think that's part of our secret. Um, because all that moisture going on the soil is making our soil rich. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the secret. Um, also, with the, the high altitude, like we have some of the best protein in the world. I really do believe that. I believe our lamb, especially, can stand up to anyone's in the world. And that's because that salty air coming in and the sweet heather off the mountains. Um, yeah, we've got good veg as well. We're known for potatoes, even though potatoes aren't originally from here. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're very well known for potatoes. Um, they don't come from here, you know, but they are grown, grown widely here. Um, <clears throat> but we have some really, really good producers here, like especially in the morning area, like over the last five to ten years, it's just got better and better and better. With the likes of Cologne Distillery, Nurinox, there's a lot of good, and there's a lot of good organic farms popping up now as well. There seems to be a real movement towards organic, which is is good, is really good, and um, I believe it's the future, you know. Did you get formal training as a chef, or, are you, or did you learn on the yeah. job in restaurants? Yeah, so I, I started cooking in kitchens when I was 12 which is probably too young, like, but I just fell in love with it. Um, and I really love the buzz and the way you get, you're able to express yourself through food. I, re- I really enjoy that. Um, done my GCSEs, but I worked the whole way through them. And as soon as I put down the pen or then the full-time employment and haven't looked back, I then went to Belfast Tech and just done day release for two years and ended up top of the class both years. But just like to put my head down. And I loved what I'd done. So I went to Tech one day a week and then worked five days a week. Um, to be fair, you learn more on the job because it's more of a hands-on type of type of career. So you learn a lot more on the job, especially when it comes to handling pressure. And um, I, I would advise any chef to go that route where, where you work one one day in tech and then the rest in the kitchens because you do you do learn and you learn off your head chef. So I was lucky enough to have two aunties or chefs as well. And one of my aunties, Patricia, she said to me when I was young, "If you're not learning, switch job every every three months." Mm. And it's no disrespect to the restaurant, but because at such a young age, you're a sponge <clears throat> and you're taking everything in. So if you're not learning, it's essential that you move to somewhere else. So you're learning constantly, you know. And to me, to be honest, that's part of the head chef's road to keep exciting, keep it exciting for young chefs and to keep them learning, you know. Was there any chef in particular that had a really big influence on you that you worked with over the years? Um, yeah, well, there's, there was one chef... Um, so I sort of worked in, in lower end places, but then I went and worked on the Bucks Head and Dundrum. And the head chef at the time, Fergus King, he, he was a really good lad. He, he lives in Australia at the moment. Um, me and him just got on very, very well. And I think he's seen the spark and he just fed it. He just he just fed it. You know, he just let me do my own thing, but guided me from behind, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's where it flourished, you know. 
Your uh, current project is named after your grandfather, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Not just the choice of naming, but mm-hmm. also what the food is like and how you came, uh, came to be working on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's Scopers as well. So it's my second business. So Scopers was my grandfather's nickname. Um, and I, as I said earlier, my grandfather taught me a lot how to forage, how to grow and upcycle. But I also see our whole food chain to be broken. Now, I can't fix any of it, but what I can do is take the most damaged bit that I can make an impact on, which would be takeaway food, which is usually processed and not very good for the body. So what I've decided to do is try and take everything back to ground this time. So everything in Scobers is sourced within 15 miles. It's all organic ethnic produce, and we buy everything whole direct from a producer. For a couple of reasons. One, so there's zero waste, so we're using whole animals, we're utilizing whole animal, but also to cut down the packaging as well. And also... I can give you complete and utter traceability of everything. So it's like people are surprised because they've won a lot of awards to see me open up a takeaway. But the idea is I want organic food to be accessible to everyone and to try and get that message out there quicker. I think that's incredible. The idea of only 15 miles, I mean, that really is is local. And I think in the United States, you see a lot of places, obviously, different geographical region, but local, you know, some people define locals to be like within 200 miles or 150 miles or something. I'm not sure if I've ever heard of something that close, but it's also remarkable because it is a takeaway restaurant. And I think when we were speaking at Cologne, I think I had used the word fast casual, but I believe there was another phrase that you used to describe it. Do you remember? Don't know. Um, Someone said it's it's the best slow food, fast food place he's been in. Yeah. You know, um, that's good. Yeah, you know, it's really important to get that message out there as quick as possible. You know, and I haven't put my name anywhere in the building because it didn't want to scare people away. You know, I say I have I've won an awful lot of awards, and I didn't want people to think oh, that's too fancy. Mm. It's not for me. Yeah. Um, how, so it's just trying to make it really accessible. So do you, I'm just curious, uh, one problem that we come up against as restaurant owners and people in the food industry when it comes to knowing our producers and sourcing our ingredients is that organic food just costs more. Grass-fed beef costs more. So I'm wondering how you deal with that in the restaurant or if the fact that you are so like hyper-local maybe helps alleviate a little bit of that cost to the consumer well like i'd be i've been cooking for 25 years and um, i've built up really really good relationships and yes look our organic food is more expensive but within the last year food has went up by 30 percent now meat meat and all especially now my organic food prices have not changed because they're all grass-fed the reason why the price of meat has went up is because of fertilizer and feed whereas mine are all grass-fed so my price hasn't shifted at all Plus, I'm buying in whole animals, which brings my price down as well. So, you know, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. Like the, those, some of those price increases haven't been seen in the organic realm. Um, I mean, I think over here in the States, I think we do see if you go to the supermarket and buy organic eggs, for example, the prices are outrageous. Like they're through the roof for those for that kind of thing. But if you go directly to, to a farmer and you're working from the source, you don't see quite as many shocking price increases if you're able to really, and that's kind of one of the big differences with, you know, with buy local versus buy or buying organic is the relationship there and like the length of the supply chain and all those things. So that's really interesting that, um, 
what you're able to achieve with like starting from that point of being like, no, we are only sourcing from, you know, so far away and we're trying to keep it all very local. Well, sometimes I just see the supermarkets just putting a stamp on it and then charging more to make more money. Yeah. And because it, it is, it is the end more than I, it is what people want. And is the produce you're buying in a supermarket organic? <laughs> right. I well, you know, it might just be a label. Yeah. To be really honest, you know, I'm not attacking supermarkets or anything, but I don't really go into them. And <laughs> I, I'd rather have a relationship with my producer. And uh, then you can get things where you want. You know, like I would use the Art Community Gardens in Newcastle. And I can see all the veg they're doing. And they do like 20 pound veg boxes. So I go to them and say, look, I know there's, you've got global artichokes there. And I know housewives don't know what to do with them. So tell me what you can't sell this week. Mm-hmm. And then I'll buy that. Which helps him out as a grower as well, yeah. and can bring my price down too. So, you know? how? So you're that? I would guess you're very involved in the kitchen at Scopers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it like? Yeah, is it the kind of thing where you've been able to like hire uh, a butcher to help you with breaking down the animals, or is it? Are you like? How hands on are you? I guess, and what's the team like there? I think it's more control free. <laughs> it's probably the best, <laughs> the best way of it. Um, Look, I, I love cooking, and um, it's as simple as it is. I do do long days, but it's my happy place. You know, if I'm really happy, I go cooking. If I'm wee bit sad, I go cooking. It's my release. Um, I do have a good team around me in scores, but it's a very, very tight team as well. Because at the moment, we're in economic downturn. You need to watch everything. I don't know what's coming around the corner. You know, and I, I need I need to build strength, and we need to survive. You know, at the moment, things are good, don't get me wrong. But, you know, you need to keep everything tight. So at the moment, I have a young trainee chef. And the idea is to train them up and to be me, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. You know. You previously uh, had a fine dining mm-hmm. restaurant, right? Can you talk about that and, and your journey from yeah. that to Scopers and what that experience was like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I used to be part owner in a restaurant called Burnell's. Um, and then lockdown came. And everyone's seen lockdown different. A lot of people were blaming China. Um, I, I disagree with that completely. I think people should take more responsibility for their actions. So um, I decided it was Mother Nature pushing back. So I decided to leave my restaurant and go on a wee bit of a mission. <clears throat> so the very first thing I done was I opened up More Larder, which is my, my secondary business, which is more, more high-end. Um, I do pop-ups, events, private dining, but most importantly, secret dining. So um, secret dining is where people buy tickets and they don't know where they're going. We drop you a pinpoint location and then pick you up in a blacked-out coach. And take it somewhere in the morning. So now it can be anywhere because it's so diverse. So it could be a forest, it could be an old castle. And then I cook 11 courses over fire, but serve the two minutes on standard. So only using ingredients within the morns and only serving alcohol within the morns as well. So for me, it's it's a real celebration of place and produce. Um, and it's just trying to get that message out to people about how much good things we'll have. Like Seeger Dine was only meant to be eight courses, <laughs> but I couldn't slim it down. I had to get all the produce in. And um, which is really, really cool. And then the second second hand of that, trying to get the message out to people, was opening up Scopers. So the two businesses run together, and that's how I create the zero waste environment. So to explain that, if I bring in a whole cow, if, if I bring in a whole cow, um, we would take the sirloin off the bone and eat that for a month, and then I dip it in the tallow and eat for an hour three months, and that would go to Seeker Dining. And then the rest of the pie would use the scopers for pies and burgers and whatever else. That sounds great. The secret dining sounds amazing. And I love that. Yeah, it's really good. There's there's a video just up on the um, Tours of Northern Ireland website. 
they come out and filmed it in January and they say it's one of the best experiences in the country whether it is or not I don't know I'm just having fun to be honest um, so even in um, and, you did that in January like in yeah 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 I've, I've done loads of them yeah I've done loads of them yeah so we can do it in the forest with TP it's not always outside like sometimes so the one we done in January was at Green Holiday Cottages so they've like got like a manor house and we were all standing with tilly lamps waiting to get them. I want people to think they're eating in the manor house, but we're actually eating in the forest at the back. Yeah. I like playing with people a wee bit, yeah, you know? Yeah. If you can make someone feel like a feel like a kid for a couple of seconds, you've done something quite magical. Um, you know, and it's just good that element surprise. But what I find really important is I do a lot of international bookings, but I also do a lot of local people as well. And what I find very interesting is I get local people saying, Paul, I don't like lamb, but I'm loving that lamb. Or I don't like scallops, but I'm loving them scallops. And I always say it's because you probably think you're eating more lamb, but it's probably New Zealand lamb and vice versa. It's been really interesting. Like for the lamb in particular, like I was serving raw lamb. So it's lamb that was wrapped in seaweed for three days. And there's no large way of um, dry aging meat where it reduced the moisture by 30%. And then it was just dressed with a, a roast lamb fat and then there's other bits of the dish. Like, but you know, I'm serving raw lamb. <laughs> And people are saying they're loving it when they don't normally like lamb. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, especially um, if it's completely grass-fed lamb as well. Lamb sort of has a stigma that it's a very strong, some even say smelly flavour. But it's a it's a winter feed that gives it that that strong strong flavour. It's not if it's only fed in grass, it doesn't have that at all. Yeah, you're reminding me of we had a writing retreat in June and we had a chef come in and cook for everyone for the weekend and and going into the experience some of the writers that came had some dietary restrictions mostly revolving around gluten and dairy but then all of them decided they were just going to see <laughs> they were just going to eat everything and see what happened and like none of them had any negative reaction to the food and Sure, it's like anecdotal evidence, but we really felt like because the chef that we had really carefully sourced all of the ingredients from local farmers that she knew had a lot to do with the fact that maybe people were coming from a place where they relied a little bit too heavily on, um, you know, processed foods, especially bread, I think, which is a, a big problem here in the States. Exactly. Exactly. Like there's, there's, Every year, there's more and more people who are gluten tolerant, um, and and yes, it, it can be in your genes, it can be hereditary, but I also believe it's to do with the the, the spray of the crop before it goes in the ground, the spray it while it's in the ground, the gas it after. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's so many chemicals on before it even gets anywhere near your body, um, and I think that's that's a problem for a lot of people. You know, um, like it, it's crazy how many people are gluten tolerant now. Um, my problem as well is that it's also run off in their in their streams, which is in their seas. And like, I'm out foraging all the time and I'm noticing the big scum on the side of the beach. And I had, had a marine biologist in Scobers last night and I was saying there about, and I said, look, I don't know what it is, but I can only imagine that it's these chemicals are dissolved in the bottom of the seabed. And then that's the dissolved um, algae coming up on the side of the beach. She says, she, she said, I'm probably right. Um, but she's not sure. Like that's, that's, it's not good enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, so we've talked a lot about how important sourcing ingredients is to you and, and, and local foods. And I, and I think that seems to be, um, 
maybe a trend. Uh, I think it's more than a trend, but uh, amongst you know, a lot of the top chefs around the world is making sure the quality of the food that you're eating is as good as it can be. But I also hear you seem to have a very like elevated understanding of what true sustainability means that I think transcends a lot of the conversations that people are having even in higher end restaurants and chef driven places. And so I was wondering, is that something that kind of came like naturally to you from your father and grandfather and growing up where you did, or is that something that you learned on the job? Something that just came naturally and a wee bit of learning on the job and just, just a love and a curve for something as well that naturally comes through. You know, if you love and curve for something, then you're naturally going to get interested in it and get better at it and have a better understanding. And look, I have three daughters. It's really simple. And if we don't change our ways, there's no fish for them by the time they're my age. Um, so we, we sort of have to make changes right now, you know, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really important. And yeah, yeah. And I don't even think everyone's throwing out the sustainability word, word at the moment. It's becoming a bit of a buzzword. It's near it's near becoming greenwashing, you know. Um, like every big company across the world now is sustainable this and sustainable that. Are they actually? I don't know. You know. I actually struggle with that myself. I studied environmental policy and sustainability in college and graduate school. And it's very important to me and to our company. But when I find myself talking about my company and I I mention the word sustainability, you know, in my head, there's like this little buzzer that goes off. That is like, I feel like I need to qualify. I'm always qualifying what that actually means, like real sustainability, true sustainability. And I haven't quite come up with, um, you know, another word. It seems like we need another word and people, people are using regenerative a lot, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, which is yeah, maybe a little bit better, hard. but it's still hard. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. people need to, people need to start, need to start talking about regeneration because if we stay where we are, we're all gone. Um, it's really simple. You know, sustain where we are isn't good enough. We need to go back, you know, and um, yeah, so it needs to be regeneration if you ask me. Uh, is there anything that you can't get in the, um, I know that you, you seem like a very pro Morn area food. <laughs> is there anything that you can't get that you, um, that you miss that you're tempted to source from elsewhere? How, I mean, like how strict are you with this? Do you use like say salt, do you use olive oil? Do you, or from your perspective, is it like very, very strict, like enforcement of this of this radius like how do you feel about making yeah. little exceptions is that something that you do or, or not no no not really yeah. not really and um, not really it's like <laughs> to describe it best my, my dad called in my mum with the flu a couple of weeks ago and he called in the scovers he's like here you get any lemons and i was like dad how many lemon trees did you pass in the way here <laughs> and he goes oh right <laughs> and he goes god yeah yeah you know and um, i think if you're going to be true to yourself you can't you can't go outside the barriers and um, there's no point trying to create a point and then go outside that buyer because then you just become fake like a lot of our people. Um, if, you, if you're going to try and make a statement, you have to stick within your buyers. And yes, it's hard sometimes. Sometimes you write a great dish and you're like, oh, can't use that. Um, and it's a wee bit annoying. But it's also, it's challenging, but in a good way, trying to find something local to replace them, which is, you know what I mean? It's cool, but there's a lot of like, see when you're in the forest and there's a lot of really cool flavors you can use. Like, 
Like we do supper clubs in Scopers as well, so it's more lager at Scopers. Mm-hmm. We do two of them a month, so it's six course tasting menus, bring your own. And then I was a couple of months ago, the last bite was a pineapple weed, pate de fruit, and chamomile sugar. And pretty simple last bite, but the reason why I've done that is because people consider pineapple to be an exotic flavor, whereas pineapple weed's probably growing in your garden. See, you know, and it's just trying to show people that there is ways around it. If I didn't have my foraging background, I probably couldn't do it. I probably, I probably couldn't do it, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting what, this is just a thought forming in my head right now, but, you know, many, I think, generally speaking, when someone thinks of a chef, they're thinking of someone who's like well-trained in the ways of cooking food and that's it. But everything that comes from like, okay, the question of like, how does the food, how do the ingredients make its way into the kitchen? That's someone else's problem. And it's always sort of been someone else's problem. And it's like, you don't learn that working in a restaurant. You don't learn how to address that. And you don't learn that in school either. And you don't learn that from most other chefs, right? So it's really interesting that you've taken that, or that's part of your identity as a chef is to start, start that thought process much earlier in the food production part of the food production chain and start thinking about, okay, where is all this stuff coming from? And most people, obviously they don't do that. It's like, okay, you call into your, call into your produce purveyor and it shows up in, in the crates and you prep it and you sell it, you know? So I just, um, maybe that's something that's changing, right? Maybe that's like something that's changing in the future is that, you know, to be a chef, you have to consider where this food's coming from. Um, I don't know if you see that change happening, but if I do, you would probably you'd be like at the forefront of it, especially with scopers. Yeah, yeah well, it, it's important. If you, if you start off with a bad base product, there's only so much you can do to that to make it a good end product. So if you start off with great, like I always say great food starts with great produce. And so it's about hunting down the best produce and building relationships with them guys. But also when you go and you see a farmer and you see how hard he works, through the rain, through the wind, through the bad days, and he doesn't give up, then you want to try and translate that passion back onto the plate. You know what I mean? And it gives you an our spark. And even you get inspiration from these guys as well. Like, so I do a dish um, where it's Dexter, Clover, and Onion. And that whole idea of that dish came from the first time I went and seen Castle Spring Farm and they got on the call done and we're going to see all, all, the, all the Dexters. And I noticed all the Clover right throughout all the fields. And, and, and that's where I got to. He says the clover holds the nitrates in, in the soil so they don't have to use pesticides. And that helped me create a dish. But also I have a better understanding of that now and how he's able to make his farm organic. Um, so yes, it's important for me because you learn better. And if you understand the ingredient better, you can do more with it. You know, it's, it's all about understanding the ingredient. You know, What about the customers? Like, do you get the sense that they are coming to you because the food's good or do they, are they coming because they really care about, are you able to communicate a lot of that to them, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why whenever I do, and Scopers is complete open pass, Mm. so I can try and get the message across to people. Look, some people just want fed. (laughs) Some people really care. If the food wasn't good, they they wouldn't be coming no matter, no matter what, you know. You know, if the food wasn't good, it wouldn't it wouldn't come at all. But also, more larder, I come out and explain every dish, and I'm trying to get the the producer story across as well. So the idea is that you're not dining with more larder every time. 
but you can go and buy their produce and cook it in at home as well. So you're trying to support everyone. So it's we're all trying to sustain our wee environment here as well. Little baby, baby joined us here. I read that you are serving in Scopers. Your your aim is to serve kind of more traditional foods or things that people are used to eating, so that the food is approachable. And um, I was wondering, you know, you mentioned earlier about going to a local farm and finding some of the produce that is really special, like the Globe Artichokes. Is there a way that you try to kind of fold those maybe more unique ingredients that people wouldn't expect or wouldn't have experience eating into the menu as scopers? Or do you just kind of reserve some of those things for the more larder project? No, 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 definitely try and get them in the scopers. Definitely. You know, no matter what it is, you know, like like we we do stuffed crochet flowers and they fly out the door and it's just a simple cheese mousse and a bit of pickled marigold and then... So you stuff the crochet flour with the ghost cheese mousse and then we tempure it and then serve it with pickled marigold. Like, it's gorgeous and they fly out the door. And people are like, I've never seen this before. It's, to me, it's quite a simple thing, you know. But it's, it's yes, get out as much as possible and that's what specials are for. So every week we'll have at least one, maybe two, maybe three specials, just depending on what needs used. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier in the conversation, is um, the way that you use the kelp um, to age the raw meat that you work with. And, and we had some um, aged beef tartare at the at the lunch we were at at Kilowin, um when you spoke a little bit there about the way that you like to blend traditional Irish methods into into your process and can you tell us a little bit about what some of those methods are yeah yeah yeah. so the the kelp is kelp is lamb look it's an amazing technique and i don't know why everyone's not doing it and um, it works really really well but it's also showing people my roots too you know and then i would do a lot of preserving loads like i make meads and i, I do loads of stuff but it's all through it all i'm building up layers of flavor that's, that's essentially what i'm doing layers of local flavor um, and just trying to show people that th- these old techniques are class for a reason, <laughs> you know, and why, why have we forgot about them, you know? Do you think that some of those kind of older diets are coming back? Do you see people, for example, eating seaweed more um, than they used yeah. to? I hope so. I hope so, because I see seaweed as a superfood. Um, like I, I use a lot of seaweed. Um, we're an island surrounded by it. But why, why would you not? Um, it's a superfood. It's really good. It's really healthy for the body. And has many, many uses. You know, for for gelification, using your carrions. But also, if you try it out, like there's no seaweed you can't eat. Just some aren't very nice to eat. So that's why I would use like the kelp and wrap stuff in it. But you can dry the kelp out and add that to a stock at the end to up your nami flavor. It's it's sort of like a secret ingredient. You know. It just keeps giving, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few questions that we ask a lot of the folks that we have on the show. And one of them is, what is Irish food? Or what does uh, Irish food mean to you? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So I, I, I see an uprise in Irish food. Um, certainly in the last five to ten years, we're just getting better and better. It's like it's been a wee hidden secret. And now everyone's starting to starting to switch on and look at it. Um, for me, Irish food is, is wholesome, full of flavour, and um, strong flavours. Um, 
and I'll say it's, it's yeah the, the rain really helps it's very very rich food um, but very honest food as well um, yeah yeah full of flavour rich honest food you know now you mentioned earlier Kilowen Distillery and also Neri Nogues the <laughs> chocolate makers are there any other chefs in the area or producers that you think are doing something really special or do you have other favourite restaurants that you like to go to yeah, yeah, so there's... That's our one. Um, there's a lot of good producers. So there's, there's Jamie. So we, we call Jamie the mushroom whisperer because he speaks to his mushrooms. So he's he's our man and he does oysters and he does shiitakes. Um, his mushrooms are the most amazing ones I've ever tried, apart from wild mushrooms, of course. Um, his stuff's really, really good. Um, again, the Art Community Gardens Organic Farm are really, really good. Four Leaf Farm's really good. There's a lot of good bakers as well. So we've got Ken and Folk who's been doing his deuce. Um, again, there's a lot, lot of other good brewers. You get Shorecross Distillery there as well. You've got Whitewater Brewery. You've got Moore Mountains Brewery. Um, Clemagan Cider, who lives four fields away from me, his stuff is phenomenal. Um, there's, there's a lot there's a lot going on. Um, Burn Balsamics vinegars are really, really good. Um, yeah, you, you could talk about it for a while. Restaurant wise, in the country, there's a couple of Michelin stars. So we've got um, Dean Zebic, head chef Alex Green, who's a very, very good friend of mine. You've also got who's Dundrum Man as well. And then you've got Mother's Club in Belfast, um, which is very, very good. And you've got Ox as well, which is very, very good. Um, they're your main Michelin star restaurants. Um, it's just in Northern Ireland. But there's also a lot of other good restaurants, you know, they're doing good things and champion local projects and then there's a lot of good street food offerings as well which are doing really really good things you know flight pizza in belfast for a start he's doing some really good things and um, yeah there, there's a wee bit of a food revolution happening here i think can you tell us a little bit about what is next for you if you have any specific plans for the future and then related to that how do you grow as a business if you're interested in growth while maintaining a commitment to a very specific local region? Yeah, so I've been asked, I've been asked when I'm opening, opening the next scopers on a lot of different occasions, and um, the answer is always firmly no. I think think once you franchise, once you expand, um, you may as well take the heart and throw it down the street because you've lost the thing where you are. So, simply because you can only manage so much I can't be in three shops at once, you know. Um, so for me, it's just trying to get that message out there. That's that's my mission is to get is to get that message out there to people and to, to grow the two businesses, but within their own perimeters, if that, if that makes sense. Um, like there'll only ever be one Scopers. Um, I don't want to be opening up anymore. I'm happy enough. A lot of people are saying, why don't you go to Belfast? Well, I, I can't do what I do in Belfast. I can't get all my ingredients within 15 miles. Um, so for me, it's I'd be happy enough if if both businesses are unhealthy and I'm getting that message out there to people, you know? Yeah, I suppose it is kind of a loaded question or something that maybe is part of the disease that we have as a, as a culture that, you know, you automatically think, well, if someone's doing really well and their product is in high demand, more people are going to want it. Like, why shouldn't they get bigger and expand and move forward so that more people can try it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's great. That that is, if folks want to try your food. They need to come find you where you are. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not trying to make millions. Like, I think the more money some people have, the more they want, and then they just get greedy and they're never really satisfied. I'm more trying to make a change, to be honest. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.